0: All right, why don't you turn to Acts chapter 2, please. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 is our text, and the message is entitled, God's Model for the Church. We're continuing our series that we started this morning on the distinctness of Calvary Chapel, that Pastor Chuck wrote, and in the early 70s, As God was um, blessing Pastor Chuck Smith at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, people would come to him and ask him what was his secret that caused the church to grow so much and so fast. Pastor Chuck would always tell them it was the teaching of the Word of God and that God was adding to his church, but that was too simple. So they would try to figure out Maybe it's the green shag carpet he has in there. You guys remember it the a in the 70s. Maybe it's the bands. Maybe it's the stool that Chuck just sits on there on Sunday night and just teaches from a stool. But it was just God sovereignly doing the work by the teaching of the word of God. Very few denominations were teaching verse-by-verse exposition through the Bible. So people were being touched by God's Spirit at a critical time in our nation's history. It was the end of the 60s, the early 70s. The sexual revolution was in full swing. And um, the religious Eastern philosophies had made their headway into our nation through the drug culture, a very critical time. And Pastor Chuck, being dissatisfied with the denominations that he pertained to, he had broken away and he went to pastor a small church of 75 or 25 people in Costa Mesa. God began to add to the church hippies and the Jesus movement was ignited, and the rest was history. Now, Pastor Chuck's dependency was on God's Word and the Holy Spirit to guide and direct him. God honored that and continued to do the same thing until his death, October the 3rd of nineteen or uh, 2013. It'll be three years this next October the 3rd. Now, most denominations um, were, again, not modeling what the church of Jesus was supposed to be and were rejecting many of the hippies. Their doors were closed. They had a certain dress code. They had certain criterias. And and and, and Chuck kind of just opened his doors up and um, he allowed them to enter into the sanctuary, not demanding that they cut their hair and um, certain other things. And um, Chuck was more interested... In their hearts, where they were coming from. And as he preached the word, and many of the young people were being saved. In fact, one time, Chuck told us about a board member who pointed out that perhaps they were going to dirty the carpet too much. They were all barefoot and everything. It was going to be ruined. And Chuck said, why don't we take the carpet out then? We'll just leave the cement. You know, there comes a place where we start worrying more about things than people. Now, I think you should take care of the house of God, but... It was just the attitude and the focus that was wrong. And so Calvary Chapel has been known for their openness to the leading of the Holy Spirit through God's Word, never contrary or beyond it, and God seemed to have honored it and continues to do so. So the model for the church is given to us in the book of Acts here, chapter two, verse forty-two. And it's based on four foundational elements, resulting in all other outgrows and ministry that will come. Let me read Acts 242. He says, and they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. You see, that's too simple. That's the way it is. <laughs> This is the model of God for the church. The apostles' doctrine in fellowship, in breaking bread, and in prayers. Let's begin here with, they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Now, the question is, what is doctrine? The meaning of the word doctrine there are two words that are used in the Greek New Testament for doctrine. The one exception is in the book of Hebrews in the Old King James in chapter 6, verse 1, where the word is logos and it's translated doctrine. But in the New King James, there's only the two words in different forms. The two words have various forms throughout the New Testament, but one word that is translated doctrine is used 21 times, the daskalia. Is the word. And it means instruction or teaching. The most prominent appearance is in First Timothy, eight times written to stand against different unsound doctrines being taught. First Timothy one three, one ten. The second word for doctrine is used thirty one times, dedeki and it means. The act of teaching or the content of what is taught. It is use of the people's astonishment at the teaching of Jesus in Matthew seven, twenty nine and twenty two thirteen. He taught with authority. It is use of the apostles' doctrine in which the church continued and filled Jerusalem with, in Acts two, forty two as I read, and in Acts chapter five, verse twenty eight is used of the false doctrines taught by Balaam and the Nicolaitans in Revelation 2, 14, and 15. So the context is important. Is it good doctrine, God's doctrine, or is it false doctrine? The context will tell you how the word is used. Now the basis for judging what is doctrine is important. Doctrine is always based on what is found in the scriptures and taught. Due to the fact that It is God's revelation of truth, be it about God, man, sin, or whatever topic is being discussed. That's something that you can count on 100% as accurate. When God says man is a sinner, trust him. When he says man has an evil heart, trust him. When God says that no one gets to heaven unless they repent and come through Jesus Christ, trust Him. Doctrine must be distinguished from dogma, which is man's statements of truth as a set, as set forth in a creed perhaps, religious creed or something. Um, but often it's not biblical. A good example of, of dogma is the teaching of the Catholic Church that Peter was the first pope. It's not true. Peter would have had to have been about 350 years old because the Catholic Church didn't start until 312 after Constantine married the Church of the world. So it's a dogma, contrary to Scripture. So doctrine is God's instruction and teachings about His revelation to man about the truth regarding the things of God and man that can be found systematically through the Scriptures and consistently through the Scriptures. Why do we need doctrine, some say? This is a big argument today, more than ever before. Let's just love one another. Really? Love apart from doctrine will degenerate into carnality, self-centeredness, and perversion for two reasons. Because there is no knowledge of God and the things of God apart from the Word of God. Secondly, because human passion, which is self-centered and self-serving, will triumph where there is no godly fear. Proverbs 1, 7, 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is beginning to wisdom, understanding. If you're not in the word of God and doctrine, how do you know the boundaries? How do you know the standards? How do you fear God? Love is never a substitute for doctrine, but is the very motive for teaching doctrine. Because you love God and you love the people of God, you teach them doctrine. You as parents, because you love your children, you tell them what is right, what is wrong, who to hang out, who not to hang out, because you love them, not because you think you're self-righteous and you hate other people. Today, churches are calling those who insist on doctrine as self-righteous, judgmental, critical, because the church has allowed the politically correct new vocabulary and dictionary in their midst, in their worldly. Others are teaching that the Word of God is not relevant for today. So they teach worldly, cultural Christianity. They're redefining the church, redefining the Christian, redefining Christianity in itself. The record of the early church is that they understood the importance of doctrine. Once again, here in in our text, 2.42, they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Simple. They gave an answer to every man for the reason of the hope that lies in him with meekness and fear. 1 Peter 3.15 So if people ask you, who who is God? Uh, Where does it say he's holy? Uh, Why does he require repentance? You can only know that if you know doctrine. You can only know that if you study the Word of God. So you're to be able to give a response to people when they say, why do I need to repent? Why do I need to be saved? Why do I have to do this, not do this? You must study doctrine. Now the basic benefit of doctrine is first in order that the authority be established. You ready for it? God's authority, not mine. Not man's. God's authority. He's the creator. We're the creatures. He's holy. We're sinful. We need to repent of our sins. So he can live in us and through us. Jesus said, And in vain they do worship me. Thinking about the Pharisees, the scribes. Teaching as doctrines. The commandments of men. Matthew 15, 19. Kind of sounds like today. Matthew describes Jesus in Matthew 7:29 as distinct from the religious leader saying for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes see Jesus never quoted anybody he says you have heard it has been said i say to you whoa well, Jesus quoted nobody he only quoted the prophets in fulfillment he was an authority in himself he was God second reason is in order that the word of god may have free course to refine the believer In Hebrews 4.12, it says that the word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit. A discerner of the thoughts and intent of the heart. As I read the word, as I study the word, it cuts me, it transforms me, tells me where I'm wrong. It's the plumb line, as I've always told you. A plumb line always lets you know what is crooked. The plumb line is never crooked. If you don't study doctrine, where's your plumb line? What are you measuring and what are you measuring? And how are you measuring it? Paul prayed for the Philippians. That their whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians 5.23 Now if we're supposed to preserve it blameless until the coming of Christ, then what's the standard? What standard is blameless? The word of God. The Philippians, Paul said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, in Philippians 2.5. He's talking in the context about being a servant, being humble, even to the point of the death of the cross. To the Ephesians, he said, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, Ephesians 4.23, the new mind of Christ. The spirit of God, the word of God, the spirit and the word work together. So the Romans says, present your body, your living, sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. At least you can do for what he's done for you. Not being fashioned in this world system, being transformed by the renewing of your mind to prove what is that good, acceptable and the perfect will of God by doctrine, by teaching, by the word of God. Romans 12, 1 and 2. But thirdly, in order that we be not tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. Very clear in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 16. The goal is the maturity of the saint. You get born again, you're a newborn babe, you desire the sincere milk of the word, and you start growing and developing. We're to grow in Christ, we're to develop in Christ, we are to mature on every level. Going from newborn babes, desiring the unadulterated word, as I said in 1 Peter 2.2, 2, and then going to a mature adult in Christ Jesus. You see, the Holy Spirit warns about the latter times in First Timothy 4.1. That the proclamation is to be explicit, very clear, by the Holy Spirit to the church. That in the latter days, some will fall away, some will depart from the faith. The warning concerns the nature of the latter times. Some will depart from the faith periodically through the church age. The method is by giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons, literally demons teaching through men. False doctrine, heresies. If you listen and you you hear some of the things that are being taught in the emerging church today, where in the world do you find that? In the Bible. And hundreds and thousands are following. There's no plumb line, no measuring rod. There are various examples of the dangers of teaching with no regards to doctrine. Listen to Jesus, Matthew 22 29. You are mistaken not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God, talking about the resurrection and marriage. You are mistaken. You must know the word of God. Peter says, as natural brute beasts speak evil of the things that they do not understand, 2 Peter 2.12. They just talk all kinds of stuff. Peter again says, they twist them to their own destruction, 2 Peter 3.16 Do you realize that the whole sect of positive confession movement teaches that Jesus Christ went down to hell to pay the atonement, to finish the atonement, to pay to Satan? That's blasphemous. Blasphemous. Did they teach it? Paul in Galatians 1, 6-9 say they pervert the gospel. Now doctrine is much like doctoring it is giving out what is going to make a person better and healthier in the spiritual sense when you go to the doctor he's going to give you medicine to get better right when you know a doctor you're going to be healthy simple most denominations still do not teach through the bible verse by verse book by book they preach topical sermons Non threatening, non confronting to the hearer. They will deliver lectures or sermonettes for Christianettes. They'll spend 15, 20 minutes on the offering, laying sad stories, and they'll give you a 15 to 20 minute message with a lot of stories, make you laugh a little bit, then you're off. They do not deal with sin specifically. Issues that might offend the hearer, such as the seeker friendly church of Rick Warren, the emergent church, all the emergent teachers. God has put the pastors as watchmen. Ezekiel was a watchman to warn those about the false prophets. And God said, I will hold you responsible, Ezekiel. If you don't warn, and they die, you're responsible for their blood. Paul the Apostle said the same thing to the elders of Ephesus in Acts 20. Many churches depend on programs for their growth. Church growth classes and seminars that teach pastors how to grow their church. Fuller Seminary is the academy. With Wagner, he's got the chair of McGavern. Marketing techniques to motivate people. So pastors use carnal means to motivate carnal people to get about and get done what they want, whether it be raising money or putting people where they want or to make them compete against one another and everything else. Wow. Others attempt to bring, in the latest, craze in the church circles, signs and wonders. The late John Wimber used to teach it over here with Wagner in Fuller Seminary. He used to be part of Calvary Chapel and then he divided and took many with him. Laughing in the Spirit, drunk in the Spirit. How convenient. You just come and you get drunk in the Spirit and you dogpile women and men all together. How interesting. No wonder your church grows. Seed faith. Plant your seed. Give me ten, God will give you a hundred. Really? Wow. Use carnal means to motivate carnal people. But the leaders are more carnal than the people then. Little God doctrine. You're God's, therefore you're never to be sick. You're to be healthy and wealthy. Name it and claim it. Nab it and grab it. Where do they get this stuff? Slain in the spirit. The only ones I know slain in the spirit was Ananias, fire. They never got up. Growling like animals, acting like animals, characteristics. Wow. Imagery. Imagine. Scenario. Contemplative prayer. Tapping into the demons. Walking through labyrinths. APU had a labyrinth. I don't know if they still have it. Christian colleges, universities. Hmm. All this stuff was taught when I went there in the mid-80s. 85, 95, 205, sheesh, almost 31 years ago. And it was there being taught with the beginning of the emergent under spiritual formation Richard Foster celebration of discipline he's a golden calf we at Calvary Chapel Pasadena believe that if we teach doctrine the word of God and depend on his Holy Spirit that is enough for God to do his work in his people the Spirit of God birthed the church at Pentecost in Acts two. The Lord asked of the church daily such as should be saved in Acts two forty seven. I never added one person to the church. The simple way to know what doctrine is is if you ask three things: first, did Jesus teach it? Second, is it practiced in the Book of Acts? Third, is it taught in the Epistles? Is it found there? It's real simple. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it in Matthew 16, 18. We at Calvary Chapel Pasadena believe in continuing in the apostles' doctrine. We've been doing it for 36 years. We will continue to do so. Secondly, continuing steadfastly in fellowship this is the second element. The word for fellowship is usually an unusual word and difficult to translate uh, by any one English word. It's very rich. It's the word koinonia, and it means uh, partnership, uh, oneness, communion, uh, togetherness. And there are different forms of the word that are used throughout the New Testament. Koinos, kono, kononia, kononio, uh, in different forms. But it's all based on this richness of the word. The fellowship of believers involves gathering of the saints in different forms. The fellowship of the saints corporately is not to be forsaken as the manner of some is. Hebrews ten twenty five is. Some people call themselves Christians, but they never come to church. Only when they feel like it. Or, you know, today's a nice day. Well, church, the beach, I'll go to the beach. Well, does it look like it's going to rain outside? Nah, no, I'll stay home. Watch it on the internet. Fare with the Christians. Do not forsake the gathering of the saints, as the manner of some is. Fellowship of saints, individual ministries. That's how it's used in Galatians 2 9. different ministries. One is partnership. The fellowship of the saints outside the church, Acts 2.46 here. The relationships you build when you fellowship with one another in the Lord. The fellowship or oneness with unbelievers to be unequally yoked is not to be any longer in our life on a regular basis. Second Corinthians 6, 14 through 18 which has come out from among them. That doesn't mean that we can't speak to our neighbor. It doesn't mean that we don't have friends that are non-believers. But we do not live in fellowship with them on a consistent basis. I don't go out to their parties and see them get drunk. I don't go out and, and partake of their dirty jokes. I've made a separation. Because I think I'm better? No, because God tells me that I'm to be a witness. If I'm not there to share the gospel, then I can be sucked in, right? It's just so simple. The fellowship is identified with the financial contribution for the saints of Jerusalem in 2 Corinthians 9.13. The very word is used. Partnership, as they were going to give to the poor saints. Same word. We are to be a light to the world, salt of the earth, being the church, Matthew 5.13 through 16. Light dispels darkness, salt causes people to thirst, and it purifies. Preserves the fellowship of believers is to be known for their love for one another. Jesus said in John thirteen thirty five, "By this you shall know you are my disciples have love one for another." But that agape love is based upon doctrine. That's agape love, God's love, not sexual love, not emotional love, but God's agape love that He gave His only begotten Son, that love that gives. They're looking for the best for others. Now the fellowship of believers is centered on God. The fellowship to have mutual fellowship with God in His body and with each other, which is to bring fullness of joy, according to First John chapter one, verse three through four. The joy that we are able to fellowship with God and then fellowship with one another. In Christ Jesus? I mean, you stop and think of the various kinds of people that you fellowship with now as a Christian that you wouldn't be caught dead at before you were a Christian. When you, when you, before you were a Christian, you, you, you hung out with people of your own town, of your own neighborhood, of the one, you know, if you were a low rider, you were a cruiser, you were this, whatever, you hung out with them. And now, your fellowship was with, with so many different kinds of people because what is the heart of the importance is they're Christians, they're born again. They believe in God and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. That is the common ground. God created man for fellowship. Adam and Eve walked with God in Genesis 3.8. Enoch walked with God, Genesis 5.24. Noah walked with God. Genesis 6, 9. Now we walk with God. Before we didn't walk with God. We were religious maybe. But we didn't walk with God. We used God. Oh, if you get me out of this, God, I'll... Emergency God. Now God is the one who made this possible through His Son. He made Him to be the propitiation for our sins and not ours alone, but the whole world. 1 John 2, 2 says. He paid the price of sin for us. He died in our place. God is in the midst of His people who fear Him, listening as they speak to one another. Malachi 3.16. God listens to His people as they speak to one another about God. God's interested in this fellowship as you have a passion for God. Acts 2.46-47 says, So continuing daily, with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as were being saved. That fellowship, that oneness, that communion, that participation. Fellowship often in denominations as well as in any other church can degenerate only to only those who are like us. It proves our carnality. Fellowship often is confused for church meetings or board meetings or that initiate programs for the church and denominations often to elect the officials. You know, we we don't have committees here. We don't have boards and this and that. We just teach the word of God and we follow what God's leading for us. How to reach the youth. How to get out and minister uptown to the non-believers. We order the high schools. We do mission outreaches in Mexico. We, we, We pray that God will save people and people get saved. We preach and teach the word of God. God saves people. Fellowship often can be a time of gossip. And complaining instead of real concern and care for people. So people just gather to be carnal. And they do the same thing they did in the world. Evidence that the Word of God is not transforming. They're not yielding. They're not spending time in the Word of God. Fellowship can be perverted by simply thinking it is a time to get together and eat. Some people think that fellowship is just time to eat. Christians are always eating, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with eating. But if that's what you think fellowship is all the time, It's it's a very small portion. So we at Calvary Chapel Pasadena believe in continuing steadfastly in fellowship on every level. Very important as one of the elements for the model of the church. Thirdly, notice they continue steadfastly in breaking of bread. Communion means. A commitment to deal with sin when it enters my life. The believers to examine himself regarding sin before he partakes. First Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. We call the Lord's table a time of communion, and therefore it is one of the most precious privileges of the Christian. For it represents more than a ritual. In fact, a reality of love for our Lord. The one who does not examine himself, he eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body, Paul says in First Corinthians eleven twenty-nine. So when we partake here once a month in the midweek and we worship God, we give an opportunity for people to get right with God before we partake, and we warn people don't partake unworthy. Unworthily means in an unworthy manner without confessing your sins. Not that you are worthy of it, but that you are right with God. It can become a ritual. It can become very mechanical. It can become meaningless. For this very reason, many who were sick, Paul says, or many were sick and weak among them. Because they were partaking of the Lord's communion table in an unworthy manner. 1 Corinthians eleven three thirty. So God struck them with illness. And in fact, God had taken some of their lives. He disciplined them. Eating their own food and not sharing it with others in their agape feasts. Selfishly. Drinking too much wine and becoming intoxicated, or bringing different kind, of stronger wine. The benefit, Paul says in First Corinthians eleven thirty one, is self judgment, confessing one's sin, asking God to search one's heart, because even Paul says, if I judge myself and I find nothing, that doesn't mean there isn't anything. But I trust God to reveal my sin. Search me Lord know me there's any wicked way within me. The evidence of judgment is that we belong to God, first corinthians 11:32. The communion table is not to be treated as a place to simply eat or be self-centered. Paul is saying in first Corinthians 11 33 and 34. The Lord told his disciples, "With desire I have desire to partake of the Passover with you before I suffer in Luke 22:15." Everything was prophetic. All the sacrifices, all the offerings were pointing to the fulfillment of the atonement by Jesus Christ. And that night he fulfilled it. This is my body. This is my blood. You see the communion means commitment to fellowship with God as well as with man. John said that our joy is based upon the fact that we have fellowship with God and each other, as I pointed out in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. The fullness of joy. The vertical relationship with God is the priority in fellowship. For we were made in the image and likeness of God, Genesis 1 26. First, the vertical. God created us for fellowship with Him, not because He was lonely. God needs nothing outside of himself. God commanded Adam to not eat of the fruit in order that fellowship would not be severed in Genesis 2 16 through 17. But when he partook of it, even Adam, God broke fellowship with man due to sin. And Adam and he hid themselves in Genesis 3 10. Because they were out of fellowship with God. Sin breaks fellowship. There must be a confessing of sin as a believer to be back in fellowship with God. You, as a father or mother, when your son or daughter does something that breaks one of your rules or whatever it may be, and you send them to the room, you're not in fellowship right now. You're not right. You're looking for confession and acknowledgment and asking for forgiveness. Then there'll be fellowship when that's restored, not before. God sacrificed an animal to cover their sin with the blood and covered their nakedness with the skin of that animal in Genesis 3.21. And that was the initial token from there on, blood. I've given you the blood upon the horns of the altar for the atonement for your sins. It was all prophetic of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John one twenty nine. Now the horizontal relationship with others is the outcome of the vertical one. So we're right with God, we're walking with God, then we're going to be right with each other. That's important. If I'm fully aware of how much God has forgiven me, then I will yield to God to forgive through me. As to the woman caught in the very act of adultery in John 8, 1-12. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, go and sin no more. That's always a condition. You repent, go, sin no more. You don't live in that lifestyle anymore. You're not perfect after you're born again, but you do not practice to live the way you used to. Now you have a new nature. Now you have the mind of Christ. Now you can say no to sin. If you're growing and being transformed by the word of God doctrine. If I am fully aware of how often God is so merciful to me, then I will be merciful to others. Not like that evil servant who was forgiven millions and yet he went out and got his fellow uh, servant that owed him pennies and threw him in jail in Matthew eighteen twenty-one through 35, the evil servant. So the master recalls and says, how much I forgive you, everything. He said, you evil servant. Wow. No one will ever sin against you as much as you have sinned against God. And every time you ask him to forgive you, he does, if you're truly repentant. If I'm fully aware that I'm saved by the grace of God through faith and not of myself, then I will be gracious to others, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. If I do this through the work of the Holy Spirit and according to the scriptures with the motive of love, then I will not be permissive or compromising with sin or doctrine. 1 Thessalonians five twelve through 22, he gives you all kinds of things there in obedience to God's instruction. Communion means commitment to serve others in view of the Lord's coming. Listen to the words of Jesus the son of man comes not to not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many in Matthew 20:28 20, Jesus came of his own will and did not uh, did all things that pleased the father John 8:29 tells us always He came to serve sinners he came as the true light that lights every man that comes into the world. John 1.9 He came to the world too. He created, but it did not know him. John 1.10 He came to his own and they received him not, meaning the Jew. John 1.11 You see, Jesus came as a man, emptying himself of his glory. Paul tells us in Philippians 2.7-8 being in the form of God, he didn't think of robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, and he emptied himself, the kenosis, he emptied himself of his glory, not of his deity. And he took on the form of a servant, and he was obedient, he humbled himself and was obedient to the death of the cross. The term being in the form of God the word being is what's called an antecedent condition it refers that he to the fact that he was God before he came he was God when he was here and he was God when he left and he's still God he was God who became man 100% God 100% man i would never know that unless i study doctrine the word of god he was God before he came and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you and I. The God-man. He will come back in the very same body with the very same marks on his hands. In his brow. Read Isaiah 53. Wow. He became flesh and manifested his glory as the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. John 1, 14. He divested himself of his glory again never his deity. John 17.5 Glorify me, Father, with the glory which I had before the world began. He emptied himself of his glory. You see, Jesus came to serve by dying for the sins of the world. The invitation is John 3.15 in the proclamation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What an incredible verse. He was the Lamb of God, taking away the sins of the world, as I said earlier in John 1.29. He was the Savior of the world, John 4.42. They received that title in Samaria, by the way, not Jerusalem, (laughs) by what they call half-breeds. Half-Jew, half-Gentile, Samaritans. That's why the Jew hated him. He was the Son of God, the King of Israel, John one forty nine. He was the fulfillment of the serpent in the wilderness, John 3.14-14. 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, the cross, that whoever believes should not perish, but everlasting life. Wow, what an incredible prophecy. We could have never even identified that. Jesus puts it together. Our Lord and Savior declared to His disciples that one of them was going to betray Him. And they all said, listen carefully, they all said, is it I... Every one of them knew they had the potential to betray Jesus. That's good. That's good perspective. Never say never. And then he served them before communion by washing their feet in rebuke to their constant disputing between each other who was the greatest in the kingdom. John 1315 Wow. Communion in the Catholic Church is the actual reenactment of death of Christ, which is a contradiction to Scripture and the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. For he offered himself for sin once and for all, having no need to die again. Hebrews 9:28 says. This is called transubstantiation in the Catholic Church which means that it's the literal body and blood of Christ that is transformed by the priest. The bread and the wine. That's nonsense. It is not the If it is then Jesus is dying every time, a contradiction to scripture. He died once and for all. Communion to others, is real mystical. And it refers to an event as a consubstantiation rather than trans, con. That means that the literal body and blood are not in the bread and wine, they say. That's good. But they say there's a presence in a way that we do not understand. Mystical. The problem with that is, is like a, like a, Squid or a jellyfish you just can't get your hand around it. it squeezes out of it and so mysticism exalts a person as being spiritual when they have no basis for that or no clear truth about it communion to Calvary Chapel it means a sacrament simply what is taught in scripture commanded by Jesus to do it as often as we come together Communion is in remembrance of what Christ did for us in the past by literally dying for our sins. Communion represents his body and blood by the bread and the wine in remembrance of what he did and that one day he will partake with us again in the Father's kingdom. Matthew 27, Mark 14, Luke 22, 1 Corinthians 11, it's all over and so we partake once a month here as a body because it's more convenient in the midweek rather than the three service on Sunday morning. And we have non-believers sometimes, so we want to make sure it's believers. But I pray that you partake at home, on your own, with your family. You can partake anytime you want. So we at Calvary Chapel Pasadena believe in continuing steadfastly in the breaking of bread. It's doctrine. The third element. The fourth and last element is prayers. Plural. What is prayers? The scripture tells us prayer is communication. Man talking to God. Revealed in the Lord's prayer in Luke 11.2. Our relationship to God is that of sons and daughters. And he is our father in heaven. Our Father who art in heaven. Holy be your name. Our heavenly Father is interested in our needs. He wants to hear from us. You as a parent love it when your children ask you for things. You look for it. And then you say sometimes yes, sometimes no. And you give the reason why. We should be as excited over a no from God, as a yes, because that means that is His perfect will for us, that is the best for us. Our Heavenly Father is interested very much in hearing from us all the time. The scriptures teach prayer is not simply a tool or avenue to get my will or desires done or my wants accomplished but God's. So we are to pray according to the will of God so that He can answer accordingly our prayers in 1 John five fourteen and 15. How do I know the will of God? The will of God is found in the Word of God. We're to understand that prayer is to tap into the things of God, not simply to get things from God. Even as Daniel sought the Lord after the seven-year captivity, were almost up, to see how he would fit in the plans of God in Israel in Daniel 9, 1 through 3. The scriptures imply emphatically that prayer is a proclamation of total dependency upon God. You might just read Psalm 73, verse 25 through 26. God is to be our primary love. Listen, whom have I in heaven but you, and there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. Is that your heart? Your acknowledgement? God is to be our primary strength. Listen to the next verse. It says, "My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever." You see, prayer brought him back to reality. He was envious at the wicked. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, verse seventy he says, then I understood their end. By the way, prayer, one mouth, two ears. We should listen twice as much as we speak in prayer. We think prayer is giving God information because, you know, he doesn't know the facts. So I got to get him up on it, right? Interesting. The scriptures tell us that prayer is a matter of the heart posture, not a physical posture necessarily. Very important. Jesus told the Pharisees and the, the tax collector, remember that? As they went to pray, one prayed for to himself, the other one prayed to God in Luke 18, 11-14. The tax collector wouldn't lift his eyes up to heaven. He just says, Lord, propitiate me, a sinner. The Pharisee looked down and said, I thank God I'm not like other men. And he's probably looking at the tax collector. The position of the body can be on our feet, our knees, our backs, our face to the ground, lifting hands to heaven. But if the heart is not humble, the only desiring to be seen of men, then God's not impressed, nor does he hear. Matthew 6, 5 through 7 is very clear. How do we know what to pray for then? By knowing God's word, which reveals God's will, as I said earlier. Behold, I come in the bottom of the book. It is written to me to do your will, O God. Hebrews ten seven, quoting Psalm 40, verse 6 through 8. It's prophetic of Jesus. The revealed will of God is found in the word of God, as I said, to be obeyed. Then he will reveal my personal will. If I can't obey what God has revealed here, why am I seeking for my personal will that I'm not going to obey? If I'm not obeying this, what's going to make me think I want to obey when God tells me to do something? I'm deceiving myself. Presenting your body a living sacrifice, as I said earlier, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Also by praying in the Holy Spirit, we have one weakness. We don't know how to pray the way we should or the way we ought. So the Holy Spirit makes intercession according to the will of God, Romans 8, 26 and 27. That's for those who don't have the gift of tongues. Not everybody has the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues or your prayer language is given in 1 Corinthians 14, 14 through 16. Those that haven't, use it. Those that don't, the Spirit makes intercession. They're two different things. Because Jude 20 gives a general command to all. That we are to pray in the Holy Spirit in order to build up ourselves in our most holy faith. That's a general command. Now if everybody doesn't have the gift of prayer language or tongues, how do the others fulfill it? Romans eight twenty six 26 and 27. It's the only way we can fulfill that. There's no other option. But also by knowing what Jesus taught in prayer. Jesus gave us an example of prayer. For content. Not for pattern. In Matthew 6, 5 through 13. Prayer is not to be used to bring attention to myself. Prayer is not for man's ears. But for God's ears. Sometimes people pray publicly and they're, they're, they're praying to people. But they say, ooh, boy, he's spiritual. What are the big words he uses? Prayer is not to be vain repetition. I was a Catholic before. I prayed like a parrot. Just repeated things. Prayer is not to inform God about something that he doesn't know. Prayer is marked by certain characteristics. Our relationship his um, dwelling, heaven, His holiness. God's kingdom to come, His will to be done. Our dependency for our, our daily bread on Him. And God's forgiveness of our sins. And His deliverance from the evil one, Satan. Important things, priorities. Now, why should we pray then? Prayer is commanded. First of all, Jesus said, men ought always to pray, Luke 18, verse 1, the first portion. Paul says that we are to pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5:17. Those are commands, not suggestions. Prayer keeps me from lo- losing heart. Jesus said, men ought always to pray and not lose heart, Luke 18, verse 1 there, the second part. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Ephesians 6.18, the last part of the armor. Elisha's servant, remember, saw the Syrian army around the city of Dothan. And he feared. And Elisha prayed, Lord, open his eyes. 2 Kings 6, and he saw the angels around him. Those that are with us are more than those that are with them. Wow. Prayer protects me against anxiety. Jesus said we are not to worry about the things of life, but to learn from the birds and the lilies of the field that if God provides for them daily, how much more for us? Matthew six twenty five through thirty four. Paul taught us that we're to be anxious for nothing, but all things by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, making our requests known to him, will keep our hearts and guard our minds. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Paul declared that the result is the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Again, guarding our hearts and our minds through Christ Jesus. Prayer is in order to see God work also. Listen to Jeremiah 33.3. Three. I did a whole sermon on it. I still remember. Listen. Call on me and I will answer you. I will show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Jeremiah. Wow. Jesus said, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors to his harvest. Matthew 9.38. That God would instruct us, guide us, direct us. Prayerless lives, by the way, is a sin. Samuel said to the people of Israel, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, 1 Samuel 12, 23. Now, when God tells you not to pray for someone, then you obey that. God told Jeremiah three times, don't pray for these people no more. God has never told me that, so I continue to pray. When he tells me about that person, then I won't pray for them. But only if God tells me. Jesus is our greatest example of our need to pray. As he prayerfully depended on the Father for everything. Prayer is not an option, but an essential as the very air you breathe. You want to know how long can go without prayer? Pinch your nose and cup your mouth. It's just that simple. We live in an attitude of prayer. Listen to Martin Luther. He said, "I have so much work to do that I cannot get along without giving these three hours daily of my best time to prayer." Wow. Corey Tembu in her devotion on March seven shares the following in prayer quote May we pray about little problems of my life, or only about the big ones? One day when I had a bad cold in the concentration camp. Betsy, my sister, prayed for a handkerchief for me. We laughed at the silliness of the prayer, but only a few minutes later, a woman came by with a handkerchief for me. We do not know what God considers important. We do know that he answers prayers, even tiny ones. You must listen to this woman. She went through the German concentration camps. As Christians, we need to know the importance that God places on prayer in order to transform and affect the life of believers, the church, and to reach the world. Jesus said, "Whatever you ask in prayer, believing you will receive Matthew 21:22, because you're asking according to the word of God, the will of God, right? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. Mark 14, 38. We see the men in Acts being sent out by the direction of the Holy Spirit through prayer. Separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work of the ministry which I have called them. Acts thirteen two 2-3. Wow. The first church council was sensitive enough to hear the spirit regarding the Gentiles. It seemed right to the Holy Spirit and to us, Acts fifteen twenty eight. Not us and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit and us, second. Today the church says, us first. No. Paul and Silas were hindered by the Holy Spirit from preaching in Bithynia and directed them through prayer to Macedonia in Acts sixteen seven. This is the blueprint, the model of the church and no other. We at Calvary Chapel Pasadena believe in continuing steadfastly in prayers. And so the model for the church has been given to us in the book of Acts. And all other outgrowths in ministry will come from this foundational elements as we continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking bread, in prayers. There you have the distinctive of the church. Lord, thank you for your love, your goodness, your grace. We pray that you deal with our hearts, Lord. We pray that you just guide and instruct us. That we would be a proper example of your church. The Father, when people would be teaching other things, that we would be bold and courageous in your love. To correct them. To bring them back to truth. So Lord as we seek you. Direct and guide us. As we fellowship with one another. As we break bread Lord. That we would be an example to those around us. As you're praying. If you're here tonight. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. God has brought you here to be saved. To repent of your sins. That's the. First thing we do. We deal with our sin. Believing that Jesus died for us. And that he alone can forgive us. Maybe you're over the internet. If God has allowed you to see your need of Christ. And reveal to you you're a sinner. And you're convinced of that. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the miracle. That's the grace of God. Now his message to you is repent from your sins. Ask God to forgive you. To come into your life. Transform your heart and your mind. As you submit your life to Jesus Christ. It's called repentance. If this is your desire. This is your prayer to the Lord. You can be saved right now. Right where you sit. Father I come to you in Jesus name. I ask you to forgive me Lord. For all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me. With your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.